This is Crooked Hospitality. It's a show all about the crime, legends, and lore of Mississippi history. I'm your host, Mae Smith, and today I'm telling you one of my favorite stories, and it all starts in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Imagine waking up in the morning, rolling out of bed, and noticing in the mirror that something is missing. A large portion of your hair is then cut off. This would probably raise a lot of questions, but luckily most of us will never have to experience this bizarre situation. However, for the residents of Pascagoula, Mississippi in early 1942, this was a very real possibility. A unique and bizarre criminal wreaked havoc on the city by breaking into the homes of sleeping residents and cutting their hair before disappearing into the night. Although one man would eventually be charged and serve time for these bizarre crimes, he would later be pardoned and released from prison, leaving the mystery of who exactly was responsible for this crime spree. This is the story of the Phantom Barber of Pascagoula. Pascagoula is the county seat of Jackson County on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, in the Mississippi Sound, east of the Pascagoula River. Before the 1940s, it was mostly a quiet fishing town with a population of around 5,000. However, Due to its proximity and access to the Gulf of Mexico, Pascagoula became the prime location for a warship building and manufacturing company after the start of World War II, bringing in about 20,000 new residents seeking employment. Pascagoula remains one of the largest industrial cities of the state and the largest of the Gulf Coast region. In 1942, this massive influx of people happened in what seemed like overnight. With a population increase of this size, the local police force were scrambling to maintain order within the city. They were dealing with an increase in crime, for sure, but they could have never imagined what kind of criminal was lurking behind the shadows. It all started on the night of Monday, June 1st, 1942. A young Mary Evelyn Briggs was sleeping in her bed at the Catholic convent boarding school when she woke up face-to-face with a strange man. She tried to scream, but fear had gripped her voice and no sound would come out. She pulled the covers over her head and thought about what to do next. After a second or two, she sat straight up in bed and saw the man across the room, standing over the bed of another boarder. Her name was Edna May. He noticed her upright in bed, and for a moment, their eyes locked. He held his finger to his lips, and he whispered, Shh, don't say a word. She then found her voice and screamed. A nun from the other room ran in swinging a broom and was nearly knocked down by the man running down the hall into the kitchen, where he jumped out the window and disappeared into the night. The nuns examined the girls and noticed that both of the girls' hair had been cut. They were both unharmed and nothing else was taken from the school. Surprisingly, after the news got out of the break-in, not many people took notice. After an article of the hair clipping was published in the Chronicle Star on June 5th, most people were just confused as to why someone would do such a thing, with the newspaper referring to the situation as an impromptu haircut. However, Things changed when, just a week later, the phantom barber struck for the second time. On Tuesday, June 9th, someone broke into the home of a shipyard employee named David Peaty. The housekeeper, Mrs. Henshaw, was awake late that night and was reading a book in the living room when she heard noises coming from the twin children's room. She went to check on them and didn't notice anything wrong or out of place at first, but after a closer inspection, she noticed muddy footprints on the bottom bunk of the bed. Then, she realized that the screen in the window had been cut and removed. After inspecting the twins, it was clear that the intruder had cut a few locks of Carol's hair. The next day, the police inspected the bedroom and noticed that the window had been cut in the same way that the window screen at the Catholic school had been cut just a week before. 
They knew that they were dealing with the same person. Now, the residents of Pascagoula were in a full-blown panic over the break-ins. People now began to nail their windows shut, even though the heat and humidity of the Mississippi summer was nearly unbearable. Newspaper headlines went wild with the headlines screaming, Phantom Barber, within the weeks that followed this second attack. Reports of attempted break-ins sprung up over the city. A few people had their window screens slashed, just like the MO of the prior attacks. A woman even fired a gun at a man who was standing in her yard looking in her windows. She was using the gun her husband had left for her for protection from the phantom barber while he worked night shift at the shipyard. During this time, police were dealing with crimes and worried calls from members living in the makeshift housing at Pelham's Point, an area that overlooks the Pascagoula River near the shipyard. The area was scattered with tents and huts, and according to locals, the area was where undesirables lived. Many of them were ex-convicts and were familiar to the police chief at the time, Mr. Mike Ezell. He claimed that when a crime was committed, Pelham's Point was the first place that he looked. One of these residents was a man named William A. Dolan, who lived there with his wife and made cash by riding on the slow-moving train that ran through Pelham's Point in the shipyard, and he would pick up the cargo that would fall from the train and sell whatever he got for scrap money. He was given permission to do this by the railroad. At night, he and other residents of Pelham's Point would sit around a fire and exchange stories. One time, Dolan shared his story to his neighbors. He told them that he had been born in New York City to a father who was a prominent doctor, and when he grew up, he studied at the University of Heidelberg in Heidelberg, Germany, where he became a physicist. His audience around the fire was filled with people who had never been outside of Pascagoula, so he became a pretty big deal to them, given his fascinating story. Plus, they believed him because he was very articulate and he seemed educated. But, while sharing these stories of his time spent in Germany, he convinced a few of his listeners that he was a Nazi sympathizer. This was something you did not want to be called at a time like this in America, with the war effort being frontline on everyone's minds. He shared with several people that he used to be a rum runner for people who sold illegal liquor, and since this was a time during Prohibition, people assumed he had gotten caught, and that's why he was in Pascagoula, down on his luck. One Sunday morning, as Dolan was riding on the train through Pelham's Point, like usual, he was collecting scrap metal. A railroad detective stopped and arrested Dolan for trespassing and took him to jail. Even though the railroad officials were questioned and they stated that they had no issue with Dolan being there. But sadly, Dolan didn't stand a chance because there was someone very important who wanted him gone. After speaking with Police Chief Ezell, the judge presiding over the case, Judge H.P. Heidelberg, heard the case and set his bond to $500. This was a fee he knew Dolan couldn't pay. Chief Ezell told the judge before the hearing that Dolan was so worthless he should be sent out of town, and if the judge set his bond at an amount Dolan could pay, he would just arrest him again once he was released. Police Chief Ezell wanted Dolan gone. I'm sure that Judge Heidelberg had no idea of the history between Ezell and Dolan, because nobody really did at this time. You see, this all took place during Prohibition, where alcohol sales and gambling was illegal. However, police often turned a blind eye to it. Some even profited from it. Chief Ezell had a business partnership with Dolan shortly before he had him arrested for trespassing. Their business? Together, they bought some slot machines and put them at the Beach Park Pavilion in Pascagoula, where gambling was known to be frequent. One day, Ezell discovered that some of the money was missing from the slot machines, and a few others were missing. 
He ended up finding them broken to pieces and the money was long gone. Ezell blamed Dolan for this and from that point on, he had it out for him. After Dolan's initial arrest for trespassing, his wife visited Judge Heidelberg and begged him to lower the bail amount. He relented and it was lowered to $100, so Dolan paid and was released. On the night of June 12, 1942, the judge's son, Terrell Heidelberg, and his wife were out one night visiting his father, getting ready to celebrate their first wedding anniversary coming up on the 28th. They left Judge Heidelberg's house around 10 p.m. and then called for a taxi to bring them home. While they waited for the taxi, they became a little uneasy at the shady characters loitering around the stop. Terrell pulled his wallet out to pay for the cab and then immediately shoved it back in his pocket as he had a lot of cash on him and the sketchy people hanging around had noticed it. As the couple made their way home and into bed, they left their bedroom windows open and began to sleep peacefully. At some point, Lucille, his wife, stirred and woke up. She sat up and tried to focus her eyes when a sudden blow to her face knocked her into unconsciousness. When she came to, she screamed in pain. She elbowed her husband and he stumbled around until he turned on the light. Lifting his hand to his head, he felt the pain and knew he was injured. As he looked at his wife, he nearly fainted at the sight of her, as she had been beaten nearly beyond recognition. She had two large gashes across her upper lip and under her nose. Three of her teeth were on the bed next to her. She had been hit on the top of her head and her shoulder. Their pajamas were soaked in blood. They notified the police, and when they got there, they saw that their window screen had been removed and was sitting on the floor inside of their living room. Immediately, the police found the weapon used to beat the Heidelbergs. An iron rod, about three feet long, was sitting at the edge of the bed. In the days that followed this brutal attack, Terrell Heidelberg was released with sustaining only minor injuries. His wife, Lucille, had suffered so badly that it took nearly 14 weeks in a hospital for her to fully recover. As the police did their investigation, they found a Ziploc bag full of hair that had been cut in the backyard. It was later proved to be Carol Petey's hair from the second attack of the Phantom Barber. This proved to be enough evidence to link the attack to one of the Phantom Barbers. The town was in an absolute frenzy again, and reports of break-ins and attempted break-ins came in rapidly following the attack of the Heidelbergs. After this brutal attack, the Pascagoula Police Department promised to arrest, bring to trial, and sentence such guilty persons immediately. So about two weeks later, on Tuesday, June 22, 1942, the headlines reported another haircutting attack on an older lady, Mrs. R.E. Taylor. By now, Residents of Pascagoula were outraged that no arrest had been made yet in connection with the attacks. Chief Ezell was beginning to become frustrated knowing he had no real leads, but had to bring in a suspect to appease the angry residents. Pretty soon, Chief Investigator Mr. Morris Talley, who worked for a private investigating company from New Orleans, arrived in Pascagoula to help in the search. Soon, Mr. Talley and Chief Ezell focused their efforts in on Mr. William Dolan as a suspect. Although there was no evidence to link Dolan to any of the attacks, they still pursued him relentlessly. When they drove to Pelham's Point to get Dolan and bring him in for questioning, they learned that he and his wife moved to nearby Waveland, Mississippi. It's another coastal Mississippi town. After they interviewed some of the ex-convicts of Pelham's Point who associated with Dolan, they felt that they had enough evidence for an arrest. So, that's exactly what they did. He was arrested and charged with the attempted murder of the Heidelbergs. Articles praised Mr. Talley and Chief Ezell's work on the case. 
Even though Dolan had been arrested only for the attack on the Hattelbergs, the headlines tagged him as the Phantom Barber and falsely explained that the police had found evidence to suggest he was responsible for the haircuttings as well. After his arrest, several people from around town claimed to have had suspicious run-ins with Dolan, and joined with Dolan's criminal background, this led Chief Ezell to believe he had enough circumstantial evidence to prosecute. Dolan was brought before the grand jury and then indicted. In November of 1942, his trial took place in the Circuit Court of Jackson County, Mississippi. He was on trial being charged for assault and battery with intent to kill for the attacks on the Heidelbergs. Although this did not stop prosecutors from calling in 10-year-old Mary Evelyn Briggs to ID Dolan as the man who broke into the Catholic school and cut her hair. Later in the trial, Dolan's attorney attempted to discredit Chief Ezell during cross-examination by asking him about the grudge he held against Dolan, to which he denied. He even brought up the slot machines he and Dolan owned, and Ezell firmly denied having any idea what he was talking about. Also during the trial, Chief Ezell and Investigator Talley were questioned about their involvement in a situation that occurred between them and Dolan while Dolan was being held in jail after his initial arrest. Apparently, the police chief and the investigator paid Dolan a visit to try and get him to sign a confession. After Dolan kept refusing, they offered him some liquor, telling him he had to drink it. Their motive was to get him to drink the illegal alcohol and then sign a confession. When the prosecutors presented their case to the jury, their biggest point was that Dolan had the motive to commit the attack on the Heidelbergs because he had a grudge against Judge Heidelberg for setting his bail so high after his trespassing arrest. This was quickly shot down by the defense because Judge Heidelberg had actually lowered it so he could get out. What grudge was there to be held? After two days of deliberations, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. He was sentenced to the maximum of 10 years at Parchman Prison After the sentencing, an appeal was filed with the state of Mississippi. A highly respected attorney, Howard McDonald Biloxi, soon took on Dolan's appeals after he read the trial transcript and reviewed the evidence and was convinced Dolan was innocent. In his efforts to prove Dolan's innocence, he learned that Chief Ezell had made promises of money and even threatened to arrest a few of the ex-convicts who were witnesses in the trial if they didn't testify to aid in his conviction. Just before the October 1945 term of court, Dolan's case was read and reviewed in the Southern Reporter, a U.S. case regional law report, which determined that Dolan was, in fact, innocent. This caused many high-ranking lawmen to take note of Dolan's case. As time passed, James Ewing, who was a staff writer for the Jackson Daily News, took an interest in Dolan's case. He traveled to Parchman to interview him. After this meeting, He was convinced of Dolan's innocence and presented his information to the Mississippi governor, Fielding Wright, and proposed that Jackson Daily News pay for a lie detector test at the Parchman Prison. The governor agreed, but said that the test alone would not be the deciding factor for a pardon. On May 13, 1948, Dolan took the lie detector test where he was asked questions relating to both the brutal attack on the Heidelbergs and the Phantom Barber attacks. The results showed that Dolan answered every question truthfully. This, along with the many petitions, aided in the governor's decision to issue Dolan a six-month suspended sentence. And on May 26, 1948, he was released and moved back to Waveland, Mississippi. Eventually, between 1949 and 1954, Dolan was pardoned by Governor Hugh White. Life went on for Dolan as he lived and worked in the coastal city of Waveland. He would eventually file a wrongful incarceration suit against the state of Mississippi, which paid him $2,500 for his time spent at Parchman. 
not long after the suit, Dolan disappeared. A few weeks later, the news announced that a body had been found by fishermen in the Mississippi River under a bridge near Chalmette, Louisiana, and it had no identification. Dolan's wife, his stepdaughter, and a few friends went to the morgue in Louisiana where they all positively identified the body as belonging to Dolan. They pointed to various scars and tattoos that were present. When Mrs. Dolan was given the clothes that the body was found in, she claimed there must have been some mistake because those were too big to have been Dolan's. They ignored this and proceeded to claim the body. After a funeral service was held, they buried Dolan in the Cedar Rest Cemetery in Bay St. Louis. Before they claimed the body, though, the sheriff of St. Bernard Parish had sent the fingerprints of the body to the FBI for comparison to Dolan's prints that were taken while he was in prison. After the report was finished, the sheriff was surprised to learn that they were not a match to Dolan. He questioned Dolan's wife and daughter, giving them this news, and they were completely adamant that the body was, in fact, Dolan's. Plus, everyone who viewed the body at his open casket funeral all agreed that it was Dolan. But in April 1954, Hancock County Sheriff John Egloff received an inquiry from the FBI checking on fingerprints of William Dolan. These fingerprints identified Dolan as having been picked up by Sacramento, California police. The Sacramento police chief said that he picked up Dolan on April 2nd for vagrancy and was released the next day after being booked and photographs were taken. Upon seeing the picture, Mrs. Dolan set out to California to search for her husband. After months of searching, she came up empty. Dolan was never seen again. I hope that you've enjoyed the story of the Phantom Barber and the man who went down in history for the crimes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week for another episode of Crooked Hospitality.